Pod Academy and I'm Amanda Barnes. In this podcast we will be finding out how even disadvantaged children in Vietnam are educationally years ahead of their counterparts in India despite per capita GDP being broadly the same in both countries. I'm talking to Professor Joe Borden, Director of the Young Lives Research Programme at the Department of International Development at Oxford University about what the research uncovered. Joe, welcome to Pod Academy. The Young Lives study has been following the progress of thousands of children in the developing world. And you've got some new findings from a survey of 10-year-old pupils in Vietnam. What did the Young Lives study find out about education in Vietnam? Young Lives has established that uh, pupil performance in Vietnam is really exceptional in some very important ways. Around 19 out of 20 10-year-olds, for example, can add four-digit numbers. At the same time, 85% can subtract fractions and 81% are able to find X in a simple equation. This is partly to do with the school systems, but it's also to do with the fact that there's a strong focus in children's home lives on their education. So out of school hours, around about 85% spend more than an hour a day on homework and 87% report reading books outside of school. At the same time, education system in Vietnam is relatively equitable. And this means that poorer children really get the same deal as those who are better off than they are. And they are therefore um, not less advantaged in the school system. Well, how does Vietnam compare with India? I think perhaps the most dramatic thing we can say is that the best performing children in India, and in this case Young Lives is looking at Andhra Pradesh in particular, don't do as well as those children who perform worst in Vietnam. So you see an enormous disparity between the two countries. And what I think this can be translated into in terms of families and children's responses is that disappointment in the standards in state school has resulted in a dramatic increase in the proportion of eight-year-olds being educated in low-fee private schools, the figure having almost doubled between 2002 and 2009. These kinds of findings are actually um, reported by other studies. For example, India's ASA Research Centre found that 47% of 10-year-olds were unable to add even two-digit numbers in India, and 68% of grade 3 children in government schools couldn't read a test designed for first-year pupils. Research from the University of California also found that only the top 10% of school students are at the age-appropriate level and the bottom 10% appear to learn nothing in school at all. So I think the point is that India is really shortchanging its children in terms of education. Why did you decide to compare Vietnam with India? Young Lives is studying in four different countries and the reason why we compare Vietnam with India is because both are Asian countries, both have experienced dramatic rates of growth over recent years and this of course means that there's enormous potential to do something about education to make sure that education systems are strong. At the same time, they have similar GDP levels and the uh, population of young people is 50% of the total. The international communities united behind the Millennium Development Goal of achieving primary education for all by 2015. 
How good is the primary school learning in other developing countries that you've looked at? Unfortunately, Young Fat Lives has found that the um, children generally are receiving much poorer quality education than is the hope of the international community. So in other words, the trends in India are much more typical than are the trends in Vietnam. And the early focus, which was a very appropriate one at the time, the earlier focus um, in education was getting children into school in the first place, which meant basically um, looking at resources, facilities, setting up schools, training teachers and so on. But I think the focus now needs to shift. We need to be thinking far more about the quality of education that children receive and the quality of teachers' um, capacity, the capacities of the schools themselves, becomes absolutely crucial. Can you give any examples of particularly bad practices that you've seen in the classrooms? Very often, teachers uh, are using learning by rote, which means that really children are often just um, copying things off blackboards and they're trying to memorise facts. There's much less focus on critical thinking, on analytical skills, and skills like that which are very important um, for children's future employment. But I think also one of the other problems in schools is work which is very abstracted, if you like, from children's everyday lives. So it doesn't necessarily bear much relation to their everyday experiences. And I think that's another issue, is that we need to be able to make sure that schools are addressing children's actual everyday lives, their aspirations and their hopes, and not just teaching narrowly academic subjects. Well, despite their dysfunctional education systems, the economies that we've talked about have had very fast-growing economies in recent years. How much does it really matter if young people are coming out of schools without really reaching fantastic education standards? I think education is probably the single most vital element, if you like, in the modern world in terms of how we strengthen our economies, how we build sustainable economies and economies that can grow and sustain their populations. And I think the mismatch between much of the current education that's on offer and what we actually need for our future societies is actually a really grave problem. It's not just a grave problem, in other words, for children and their families, but it's a problem for society at large. And if education isn't either relevant, for example, to the to the kinds of jobs that are available to children, or if it doesn't actually raise them to a skill level that they can do those jobs, then education is a massive disservice to, to children, to their families, communities and to society at large. And it's, it's already very clear that employers are growing very frustrated in many countries where they can't actually recruit children with the kinds of skills that they need for their, for their work. But also, we don't even know really at this point in time what future needs will be for children's education. The global economy is changing very dramatically. Technology is bringing incursions into all kinds of areas of production and marketing and so on. And there's going to be new requirements of new skills of children. I think education systems have to be very much more flexible. They have to be much more responsive to the environments that uh, children are growing up into and much more relevant to, to the current and future worlds that children will be living in. With more children in school, but not necessarily learning all that much, 
why, I mean, what kind of impact is this kind of having on kids' futures? They're perhaps coming out of school and not really having learnt very much. I think one of the important things to bear in mind is that Young Lives is a study of children who are mostly quite poor, from quite poor households. And one of the things that that means is that their families aren't themselves necessarily very well educated. They're not necessarily very well aware of what a good school is and of what is needed in in terms of education in order for children to be able to do well in, in the job market when they grow up. So you have a situation where families are very keen that their children do well at school, but they don't necessarily have the information and knowledge that is needed in order to be able to ensure that 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 actually happens. At the same time, in many of the communities that Young Lives children are living in, the the quality of the schooling is particularly bad, and it's, it's doing very badly by children, and children are increasingly becoming aware of this, they begin to see when they repeat grades consistently, increasingly finding themselves in classes with children who are much younger than they are, for example, because they've dropped behind their peers. Or when they find that they still can't do the basic things that they ought to be able to do when they reach a particular age, then there's a growing sense that these schools are not working for children. Indeed, we have in Ethiopia the example of a girl who actually reviewed her performance when she reached about age 15 and she just found that she was just not doing well enough. And so she made the decision and went back to her family and said, I've got to leave this school, I've got to go to a better school. So what we're beginning to see in in this situation is an increasing number of children whose families or the children themselves are deciding they need to shift to better schools This might be schools that are genuinely better, or it might be actually schools that are just perceived to be better. One of the great tragedies is that families are often making enormous sacrifices for their children to be able to go to schools. And sometimes the choices that they're making about school are really quite, if you like, quite superficial. It might be about better quality food, for instance. That's often mentioned in Andhra Pradesh. Children often talk about going to that school rather than this school because it has better food. In other words, choices are not necessarily about the real quality of education. At the same time, these choices and this this raising expectations is really driving families to make enormous personal sacrifices. So we have examples of um, families who've sold land, sold their cattle, Um, and other belongings in order for children to be able to attend school. This might be because um, children are not able to work when they're attending school, which means that the the demand on the family economy is is much greater, or it might be because um, families are choosing to pay for their children to go to school, to private schools where there are low fees charged, as in the case of India. And when this is happening, we're seeing these financial sacrifices being made But actually, the returns may not be that great. And indeed, as children grow older, as they enter their teens, there's an increasing sense that actually they should be leaving school in order to resume their work responsibilities, in order to be able to support their families. And you see many children, the problem for whom is is actually intermittent attendance more than anything else. So they might go to school, but actually only one day out of a week or, or just a several Um, weeks in the term because they can't actually sustain their work responsibilities 
which are important for their family and at the same time their education. With the sort of dash for education, it must mean that there's quite a significant amount of social change with you know, more and more kids being actually at school rather than at home helping in the fields and things like that. What difference do you think that's made to families? I think we have um, more and more children in school, definitely. And it's in three of our, our countries, which is in Peru, Vietnam and Andhra Pradesh in India, we have around 97% of the children attending school. This doesn't mean to say, actually, that they're attending school full-time, but it means that they're enrolled and are going at least some of the time. Now, that, of course, is both a direct cost to the families because usually they have to pay for utensils, um, they might have to pay for uniforms, they might have to pay for transport in order for their children to get to and from school. So that is about a cost, but it's also about the opportunity costs associated with children no longer being able to fulfil what were previously quite important roles within the family. What we find now is that children are trying to juggle both their work and their school. So they do try and continue contributing to their households, but this is actually very hard for them to sustain in light of the demands on their schooling. Or what we may find is that they are actually performing less and less well over time at school, not necessarily able to do their homework. How do you think it's going to affect future economies if children are going to school and and hoping that they're going to get massive amount of skills, but in the end that's not going to be the outcome? But at the same time, those fast-growing economies are looking to to develop into a a more skills-based economy where they're going to need more sort of cognitive skills. How do you think the kind of education standards are going to affect those outcomes? I think that's an extremely difficult question to answer because it's, I think, one of the most important concerns that I have is that even though economies are changing and requiring higher level of skills, the bigger challenge actually might be that actually they require less less workers than in the past. So we're shifting in developing countries from labour-intensive to technology-intensive processes, which really means in, in the long run that we that there is a need for fewer workers. So children may continue to aspire to higher education because they see education as a form of um, entrance into better employment, into professional jobs and so on. But it's not clear that those jobs will actually be available to children in the future in the way that, that they hope. I think the other thing that is a major concern is that still your social background, uh, your ethnicity, your caste, where you come from, these factors make a big difference in terms of who gets access to which, which jobs. So even if we do have more meritocratic education systems that are of better quality and more relevant to the modern economies, it's still not guaranteed that children from, say, low castes or from ethnic minority communities are going to be able to access the jobs that are available. And we already see that children from those minority groups fare less well in education systems and also are more likely to drop out early. So I suspect that that kind of social disadvantage in future will actually get translated into the labour market and and the structuring of the labour market. Well, donors and 
education ministries have been spending a lot of money on pursuing the goal of universal education. So are you saying the money is going to waste if kids are coming out with little to show for it? Or are you saying that it might not make that much difference in the long run anyway? I think the investment in education has actually been crucial and I think that the next stage of investment in education does need to be somewhat different. It does actually need to be much more focused on quality and relevance than it has previously. This, however, is is actually a much bigger challenge than um, people tend to appreciate because what is good quality and what works for children in one country or one context may not apply to other countries or other contexts. So, for example, um, teacher-pupil ratios are really important in some countries, as in the UK, for instance, um, where it's very important that you you have a small number of children to um, each teacher. But that may not be the case elsewhere where it's been found that that's not such an issue. So the issue of quality is very specific to particular Um, countries and it depends also on the objectives of education of those countries the curriculum and the whole approach to education and the sort of philosophy you like of education in those countries and so I think that's where the challenge of donor um, activity really is going to be in the next few decades it's how do we assess quality and how do we assess pupils' performance in relation to that quality in different country contexts and how do we invest smartly in improving um, quality for, for children. So to get back to the exceptional country, Vietnam, do you think that other countries have something to learn from the way that they do things? Very much so. I think that in Vietnam we see a system where teacher commitment is absolutely fundamental, where There is an assumption of equity across the board. It doesn't always work, obviously, in all cases, but in the main, I think that really is actually functioning very well in Vietnam. And where, of course, there's also a strong focus in um, families and communities on education as well, and where I think the, the government is increasingly concerned to ensure that education does serve the economy of Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam is actually quite worried about its competitive edge in the global market. It's very worried, for instance, about competition from China, and it's very much an export-led economy. It does need to ensure that children are able to learn the skills that are needed for high-quality goods to be exported in the future. So Vietnam does face its own challenges, but I think it's starting from a much better base, a base of equity and of relatively uniform Quality, And that's really what we need to see achieved in other parts of the world. What do you think donors and governments really need to be doing now to make sure kids aren't going to school for nothing? I think they need to be doing um, perhaps quite a lot more research, which actually does help them to understand how to target their investments most effectively. I think they need to be doing um, a lot more to upgrade um, the, the quality of teacher training in particular, but also to focus on governance issues. We need to be sure that schools are much more accountable to children. We need to be sure that they are um, teachers are actually present in schools and that there is a proper monitoring system that's going on. And I think maybe that would involve 
perhaps much more parental involvement through parent-teacher mechanisms, enabling parents to have greater scrutiny over what's going on in the school. Um, but generally, I think what one's talking about, much more investment in actually what what schools are trying to achieve for children in the in the long term. That was Professor Joe Boyden from the Young Lives Study at Oxford University. Joe Boyden, thank you very much for talking to Pod Academy. Thank you.